Okay, everybody, welcome to Cultural Conversations with us. How are you doing, Gabby? Doing good. How are you, Meg? Good. Kicking off fifth season of Cultural Conversations. And you're new this season. I am new this season, and you're leaving this season. I'm leaving. Sad day. We're excited to be here, though. We got a lot of good content coming up this season, a lot of cool cultural tips from people who have lived around the world. So overall, we have a lot of good things coming our way. Yeah, get excited. Today, our podcast is with Dan Sundwall. And let me tell you, this guy has the best stories. He was so entertaining to talk to. Seriously, he was awesome. He calls himself a recovering accountant, which I love. Because he graduated in accounting, but has been working in finance operations for a while now. So he's been on every continent except Antarctica. I can never pronounce that. He says that he's been on every continent several times, so he's got lots of stories. And if anybody has tips on how to pronounce Antarctica, (laughs) Antarctica, let us know. (laughs) Overall, we really love talking to him. He had a career path that was honestly quite an adventure. We'll let him talk about that and the lessons that he's learned along the way. So please enjoy Dan's Hunwall. Let's go. So you mentioned that uh, you graduated with a bachelor's in accounting and then you're now a recovering accountant. Can you walk us through your career path a little sure. bit? What's happened? Yeah. To you? So the interesting thing of that is, like I said, I got my accounting degree. Uh, that surprises people that know me. They're like, well, I never pictured you as an accountant. I always get that, but so be it. And then actually from there, it it was interesting, probably like a lot of things in life, it's a matter of timing and just kind of being in the right place at the right time. But I happened to be in the student union up at the University of Utah, like I said, completing my accounting degree. And I thought, well, I'll just check this. And it was a job board. And I'm going to date myself, but this was before the internet. So this was literal, a literal job board. It was a, it was a bulletin board with pieces of paper stuck to it. With the, so there were the job listings. Or, and I noticed that American Express, of all companies, was going to be on campus recruiting for bilingual accountants, specifically that, that spoke Spanish. One thing I left out in my, my background is I served a church mission in the south of Texas, where I learned kind of speak Spanish. I I take that loosely. Enough so I thought, hey, this this might be something that would work out. And so I applied and was chosen for an interview and things kind of went from there. And before I know it, we're moved to Phoenix, Arizona. From there, it kind of began an accidental career, if you will, in something called At the time, it was called Shared Services. Now it's called Finance Operations. Kind of back office finance, all the typical functions, accounts payable, accounts receivable, general ledger, payroll, travel and expense, all of those types of functions were covered. And from there is really kind of the springboard where I embarked on this crazy career in international business and and how things are done. Great. So will you tell me about your experience in Mexico and yeah. who was it with? How did that come to be? Yeah, so that was with American Express. So I was p- placed over a team that was assigned to go to Mexico City. This was at the, the beginnings of the, uh, like I said, the beginnings of the internet. So the technology was starting to come around where people could work really virtually. This concept was brand new. And so businesses 
one of which was American Express, were kind of on the cutting edge of how can we best leverage this technology. And so from a finance operations standpoint, they looked at a lot of these functions and said, this is the beginning of the offshoring outsourcing discussion, if you will. They said there, there are places in the world where we could do some of this work much more cheaply than we can do it for here in the United States. So politics and philosophy aside on, on best approach, you know, there's definitely a business case for, for moving work and doing it virtually, wherever that may be. And so they sent me to Mexico City for about five months to work with the people there to transition the work that was being done in the Mexico City office for American Express, uh, initially to Phoenix, Arizona, where we kind of worked to standardize the work and to document it. And then from there, we went and, and moved it to India. So the time in Mexico City was about five months. You know, the usual stories of kind of international business that you might expect, my Tex-Mex was definitely polished <laughs> much more by having that experience of living and working in Mexico City. I, I was able to learn the King's Spanish, if you will, much more so than the Tex-Mex that I had learned, but then also had the crazy international experiences. One of the people on, on my team was actually kidnapped for ransom. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like the little, the little things they tell you, like never get in a cab, call a car. I mean, all kinds of different scenarios come to mind. But yeah, one of my teammates, he was uh, kidnapped for ransom. They held him for about a day and a half dropped him off on the outskirts of Mexico City and he found his way back to the hotel. And I worked then with the embassy to get him sent back to the States where he was uh, from. Yeah, just crazy things like that. So, you know, different food and different language aside, I mean, you know, it's just some crazy events that kind of come and go. I think one thing that I learned in my time in Mexico was if you're going to be successful or succeed in a language that's not your native language, you really have to be willing to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to say the really stupid things. You have to be willing to make mistakes and just kind of take it as it comes and laugh it off and say, oh, that's not what I meant to say. I got myself into some real trouble on some days. I was kind of comic relief because I searched for a word and came up with one that wasn't appropriate for work. <laughs> you know, just those types of experiences you can have. I don't know if you mind, but like, I kind of want to talk a little bit more like that kidnapping thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of just like, what in the world? <laughs> for one, like, was it a cab? Did it get into a cab? It yeah. So, yeah. So what they do is picture one of the largest cities in the world. And then picture there's a criminal element there, just like there is in any city that we could live in. But in this particular case, we had been given some coaching or some counseling around precautions you can take to keep yourself secure. In Mexico City and in a lot of other countries, a U.S. business person, if you will, sticks out. There's a history of kidnapping or kidnap for ransom, that type of thing. And so one of the things, like, for example, what caught this individual who was on my team was they said, never call out for a taxi from a hotel because that allows the taxi to come and wait. And, you know, as opposed to just picking some random person up off the street, they're actually picking you up from the hotel. So you're easy pickings. They know from the get-go that you're going to have the means that they're looking for, that you're going to be worth it. And in this case, that's what this individual did. He went, went against the advice that, that he'd been given and went to the taxi stand at the hotel and 
off he went on his grand adventure. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty shaken up. It was kind of funny. The doctor rushed into the conference room we were sitting in and gave him a, a little a little pill, as he called it. And I guess it was some kind of anti-anxiety muscle relaxer because it put this guy out for... <laughs> For a little while, so. I was super intrigued by this story because it's like, what, kidnapping? But it actually turns out to be a pretty common thing in Latin American countries. So I looked it up, and this type of kidnapping is called express kidnapping, which is where a traveler or a resident, but usually a traveler, will get taken and either forced to empty their bank account at an ATM or held for a small ransom for a day or two and then released soon after. So it's more common than you'd think in places like Mexico and other Latin American countries. The good thing is there are plenty of ways to avoid it so you don't have to freak out whenever you're traveling somewhere. Dan pointed out that his coworker made the mistake of catching a taxi at the hotel. Like you said, it makes you a very clear target when you're at a hotel. You're clearly traveling and have the means to travel. So avoid stuff like that. Avoid wearing flashy clothing. And I think just be careful. Anything that might put a target on your back. Don't pull out your wallet or your big bills when you're in a market your fancy equipment, stuff like that. Just be careful and be smart, and you won't have to worry about express kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, let's avoid this big adventure. So was Mexico your first outside-of-the-country experience? Yeah, it was my first kind of real-world, real-life business experience. And it was, it was good, and from there, even with American Express, I went to Venezuela, I went to Argentina a couple of times, so that was kind of setting the ground for, you know, these next waves, these next areas that they wanted to continue to consolidate. So what was your next step after American Express? So after American Express, I got on with an international project management and engineering company, one of the largest in the world called Becto. And they're based out of San Francisco. Little did I know, but then with Becto, my business travel and business experience really took off to a whole nother level. I mean, I literally went through a passport. That means they stamped every single page, even with the pages added in a year. So with, yeah, with Becto, I was brought on because of this experience that I had with American Express. Becto looked at me and said, okay, so we've, we've been there, done that. Now let's take this resource, meaning me, and let's kind of set him loose internationally to continue this whole theme of consolidation. You know, how can we take work, consolidate it, move it to a cheaper location? So that was kind of a continuing theme from the work that I've done at American Express. But it really, like I said, it, it took off. With Bechtel, you know, I was to Australia twice, um, Chile, Brazil, Argentina again, Egypt, Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore. I mean, you kind of get the gist, right? China was in China, Japan, really extensive uh, travel was involved. And my beginnings, I guess, if you will, with American Express really served me well and kind of set the course for what I was to experience at, at Bechtel. So with all that travel and you'd be going for a decent amount of time, pretty frequently, did you find yourself trying to cater to each culture or just kind of stick with your American culture and we can deal with each other in this period of time? Yeah, it's a good question. Throughout my life and my experiences in business in, like I said, in all the continents except Antarctica, I found that there are some basics that are the same. A smile means the same thing. You know, even a handshake, 
But then, then it goes beyond that. And then you have to be aware of your culture. Like, for example, when I was working with the Latino countries, they expected me to give them a kiss on the cheek when I first was introduced or said hello, which was very foreign to me. It was very awkward. But then they kind of gauge your, your willingness to meet them halfway. So I would, you know, I would do my part, if you will, to try and meet them halfway. And they appreciated that. So, you know, whether it was a kiss on the cheek to, you know, I'd go to Argentina and then make fun of my Spanish there because they said I sounded like a Mexican, you know, and I just would have to say, well, that's where I learned it. So, you know, if I have an accent, so be it. There, there's definitely some basics you can rely on. But then beyond that, you really have to, to be open to really kind of taking in the culture, sensing what's going on, being present as to how they're receiving you and, and what you can do to be better received, you know, the kind of that give and take. I think my experience with American Express taught me that, yeah, you can go one of really two ways. You can say, this is who I am. I am who I am. I'm not apologizing nor changing my behavior to meet you anywhere near the middle. So the characterization of the being the loud American in the room who kind of bulldoze other people's thoughts and conversation I saw that happen and I learned from that, but that's not what I wanted to be. So I made it a point to figure it out, whether it was a customary greeting that was given, whether it was monitoring myself and saying, you know what, you don't always have to be speaking. Listen, listen, listen. Let them say what's on their mind because here I was, the foreigner, if you will, coming to their territory, their hometown or their business, doing really what would be difficult work even if it was English speaking in the United States, which is essentially changing someone's job, taking work away from them, maybe giving them different work to do. And in some cases, unfortunately, eliminating their position. That can be a, a really tough go of it. So somehow I had to find a way to build trust with these individuals and their teams. And that was really key to my ability to be successful with them was to connect somehow. It was almost like maybe not catering to the differences in each culture, but more or less trying to mitigate the negative aspects of culture, like being a bulldozer or like being overly loud. And yeah. Right. I mean, Americans have, just like any culture, any country, there's a characterization of us in the way that we are. The best bet would be to try and meet them some, somewhere on their, their side of the line. And it can be really even little things like food choices. I wouldn't insist on a hamburger and fries for lunch. I'd say surprise me. <laughs> and there were times where I was surprised beyond belief. If I said I didn't like fish, what they heard was he doesn't like fish that much. So we'll take him to the fish place. He just won't eat as much fish. You know, I'd have a really light lunch that day. But <laughs> I think that your son mentioned you working for Owens Corning. Was that next after? Okay, so I had the opportunity after Bechtel to go and actually run or be the leader of a shared services or a finance operations group. And I had a team here in the U.S., I had a team in the U.K., and I had a team in India. The team in the U.K. and India, these were Owens Corning employees, so they weren't defined as outsourced, but they were offshore employees of the company. Yeah, so as part of my responsibilities, I managed those teams and with that came another master's class in how to deal with not even just the UK, but India, which I'd, I'd been to India already before and dealt with India on several occasions. But this was the first time that 
I was the leader of the shared services, so I had you know more um, accountability. The one thing that I found to be most interesting in doing business in India, for example, and this actually applies in other countries, but what's unique is people think, well, in India, they speak English. They do, but what I realized was, is even though we were speaking English to each other, I could never, I could never um, consistently rely on the message being given. I learned things like, for example, in their culture, it's very much a no-no to say, uh, no, we can't do that. Or no, that's not possible. So I'd be asking for work to be done. And I would always hear, yes, yes, yes. But then the work wouldn't get done. And so I'd have to say, what about our conversation was confusing? You said you were going to take on this work and it didn't get done. You really had to work every day to make sure that that understanding, um, you know, another cultural thing from an India perspective is what I found was, is they would follow the directions to the letter. And they would do exactly what was typed down for them to do. So if there was something wrong with the procedures as they were documented or as they were typed, we'd get it back wrong. Whereas maybe it wouldn't be so uncommon in the U.S. for someone to stop and say, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Why, why would I do this when I think in my training we talked about this as the end goal? That would never happen. Never would I get an Indian resource who would say, wait, let's think about this. Um, you know, it would just be done exactly the way it was written out. So it really put a lot of pressure on, on the sending team, if you will, the work, where the work was coming from, to make sure that we documented those processes correctly because we knew we were going to get them back exactly as we had written them down. How was it managing the different teams? And would you have to approach them differently for tasks or for feedback? The team in the UK was the closest that I probably came to being kind of American in the way that they carried themselves. And for example, I was able to go to the UK, you know, I'd fly in, I'd meet with the team, we'd go to lunch, have additional team meetings. And I never really felt uncomfortable or pressured in any way. When I go to India, it was very different. So there, it was a much more formal ritual in India of deferring to the leader. So it, it would be very uncomfortable for me to approach, say, an associate or a junior or a fresher, as they call them in India, for me to directly approach a fresher and just start up a conversation with them, which is something that is very common, you know, where we come from. It wouldn't be, you know, who cares who's walking up to talk to you? <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter what their status or position is. You're going to engage with them. But in India, it was very much from a cultural standpoint, there were kind of do's and don'ts. And I, I had to kind of learn that. So if my go-to international way of dealing was to be personable and trying to gain their trust and understand where they're coming from, in India, I had to change that. So in deference to their reporting structure and how things went, I had to hold back, you know, at times and let that kind of play out. And so that was, it was difficult at first, but then as I got used to it, you know, it made sense, kind of went along from there. But in India, like, for example, the things that I learned are, you know, they have a caste system, which means that they have all kinds of levels and layers of who can do what, what's appropriate to do what. Many of the people there actually do what their parents did. So if, you're, if your father was a car driver, if he was a taxi driver, then that's what you would be. That kind of gives rise to this caste system, things you don't expect. You know, I bought lunch one day for the team. I thought, oh, we'll get pizza 
I went to get out to go into Domino's and the driver couldn't come with me. And I said, I need your help. And he said, no, you don't understand. I'm not allowed to walk into the restaurant. I never saw that coming, but you know, his cast, his class were not allowed in the restroom. And I thought, wow, okay. So, you know, you just kind of take the curveballs as they come and deal with it. So I did a little more research on the caste system that Dan is talking about because it's super interesting. So there are four main castes that are a part of Hinduism, from what I could understand in my research, that originally was a way of just assigning roles to people, but it wasn't necessarily a hierarchy. From what I can tell, the castes weren't separated socially until the English colonizers came in and used the caste to keep order of the Indian people. So under their rule, a fifth caste was also created called the Untouchables, and this was kind of their main way of separating the people and dividing them as well. So what did the people of India do once they gained their independence? Yeah, so that happened in the 1940s, I believe. They created a constitution in 1950 that formally abolished the system, but it's still... It still lingers. It's still there. Yeah. The biases and That's tradition builds it up for a while, so it's hard to completely break down. Yeah. Newer generations seem to not care as much, but it definitely, especially in the rural areas, is huge. It's really interesting that you say that, actually, because last year I had the chance to go to Nepal, which is neighboring India, so they have a lot of similar beliefs, Hinduism and such. You could see one side of the road clearly a higher level caste system than across the road and they had clear dividing lines and then one time we were visiting with someone in this higher caste system kind of asking about her family and she talked about how one of her sons went off to university gained a greater education right and he ended up marrying a woman from a lower caste so you can see that the younger generation was like really welcoming of that he it made no difference to him what caste level she was from but because she's from a lower caste, his family won't let her come back to visit them. So if he ever wants to visit family, he just goes back alone. So interesting to see how the tradition is ingrained with the older generations who I think grew up with that more. Mm-hmm. But the younger generations, kind of like you were saying, don't care as much and are kind of letting that go a little bit more. Yeah, and it sounds like newer generations are trying to change it. Mm-hmm. So when I do like how Dan, he was like, you go and it seems weird at first. This is their culture and this is their thing. And I think that that is super important. The understanding and like fit in with them instead of trying to bring your Western mindset. But at the same time, I think that they are trying to change it in their own country. So it's interesting yeah. to observe that from the outside. Very cool. Yeah. I'm super curious, this caste system that you described, if you're from America, do you fit into a certain class while you're there? Or are you kind of separate from that because you don't belong to the country? I came to know and to realize that it existed, number one, was kind of important. Number two was that this notion that if your father was a driver, and you, then you would be a driver, or if your father was a university professor, then most likely you would be too. That's a big way of doing business there. You follow in your father or your mother's footsteps. And I think a big reckoning for me as far as the caste system, and then also not to judge, because to be honest with you, uh, you know, my my first experience with a caste system when the driver couldn't come in and get the pizza with me, that kind of threw me a little bit. And I thought, what is going on? And you can find yourself being a little judgmental. And before you know it, you're developing opinions that hundreds of years and centuries have built. So who am I to impose my, you know, <laughs> my very American democratic 
free. Anyone can be what they want to be beliefs on, you know, an entire culture or a system. That was a big learning as well was just because things are the way they are doesn't mean they're wrong. It means that there's an opportunity for understanding and maybe along the way you can make some impressions for good. One of the people that worked in India for me, I had him come to the U.S. and I picked him up at the airport actually and we were driving back to work and I had to stop and get gas and he got out of the car like a little kid and came around. He goes, I want to watch this. I want to watch this. And I said, why, are you, why do you want to watch this? I'm just putting gas in the car. And he says, I've never seen anyone put petrol in a car before. And I looked at him and I thought, what? And he, and he had had a driver for all of his life. And the driver just showed up at his house with a car. He'd never once seen, in his words, petrol being put in a car before. And he was very excited to... <laughs> To experience that, you know, and it's, it's just little things like that that blow you away. I call them parables. I come across these little parables. I call it the parable of the gas pump or the parable of the paper towel. I remember going to visit India. I keep using India as an example, but I could apply this to a lot of other countries that I've been to. But I remember the first time I went to the men's room, I went to wash my hands and there were no towel, no paper towels. Like we're used to as Americans, there's always the towel dispenser and you wash your hands and dry them and throw that towel in the waste bucket and on we go. So I just mentioned something in passing to the guy who reported to me, you know, I said, oh, the bathroom's out of paper towels. And of course he was very differential. So, so I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm very sorry. We'll fix that right away. And so the next day there were, there were paper towels and there were paper towels for the rest of the time that I was there. Well, another trip I went to visit he pulls me aside the very first day and says, I'm very, very sorry. We've had monsoon rains and flooding here in India, in Mumbai specifically. There are no paper towels. So I looked at him and I, his name was Narendra. I said, Narendra, why, why the big deal? Why are paper towels such an issue? And he goes, well, we only get them for you, only when you come. And I said, I don't understand. And he reached back in his pocket and he pulled out a handkerchief. He said, this is, this is what you dry your hands with. <laughs> it never even occurred to me. I call it the parable of the paper towel just because it, it never even occurred to me that this was not a thing for them, that I was doing it the wrong way. And so, you know, again, another opportunity to learn from them. I like the parables. That actually makes me curious. So there's a couple of stories, the emergency plane landing yeah. and the close to terrorist bomb situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, with, if you're going to be successful or take part in international business, you just have to understand that there are going to be times when things don't work out <laughs> and you kind of take it and you, there's a, maybe a learning from it, or maybe it's just a kind of an aha moment. At the time I was with Owens Corning for those fact checkers out there, it was uh, in 2005, it was a Northwest flight from India to the UK. And then I was to change planes in the UK and travel from the UK to the United States. So on this particular flight, uh, middle of the night, uh, we take off, climb to cruising altitude, 35,000 feet, and off we go. And there's a little map, you know, on the wall showing where the plane is and countries. And I noticed that we were coming up and flying over from India, flying up over Iran on our way to Europe. The captain came on the intercom system and just said, you know, prepare for an emergency landing. And that is all he said. And the flight attendants started skirmishing around the plane. And for anyone that's traveled 
consistently or has experience with air travel, we went from 35,000 feet to wheels down in less than 15 minutes. They just dumped fuel and down we went. And I remember looking at the map thinking, at any moment, the plane's going to veer off of Iran. And I thought maybe we'd go across the Gulf to United Arab Emirates, or we would turn around and head back toward where we come from. But it finally registered with me that we were going to land in Tehran in Iran. And literally the day before Bush had just given uh, George Bush, so second Bush had just given his access of evil speech. And he said there were three evils in the world. One was Iraq, one, or one was Iran, one was North Korea. And I don't remember his third, but I distinctly remember we're landing in the country that is part of the axis of evil. (laughs) So we, um, we landed, there was the, the fire extinguishers in the cargo hold had, had gone off. They took the plane to the end of the runway and military troops met us. You guys probably learned this in history class at one time, but in 1979, there was a revolution in Iran. They kicked out the Shah or the King, if you will, and, and it became Islamic rule. And they held Americans hostage there for well over a year. But anyway, we were the first plane, the first U.S. commercial airplane to land in Iran since then. Like I said, this was like 2005, I think, at the time. So it had been a while. The couple of things that struck me were military met us, had us leave the plane, had us make sure that we left everything that we came with. They allowed us to bring our passports. And I did remember thinking, holy cow, this is it. <laughs> you know, thank goodness the plane was able to, you know, to land. Okay, but now what? You know, what is this going to be? And we ended up being on the ground there for about 13 hours. The biggest issue, quite honestly, was because the U.S. didn't allow us being Americans to do business in Iran, there was no way for the airline to get, a, to get us squared away to get us on another flight. So it literally took them hours to kind of figure things out. And in the end, they ended up using the British and their connections because they had dealings and flight service to Iran from the United Kingdom, but they were able to, to negotiate the next flight or the next leg of the journey. So that was tense. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, Al Jazeera, the Arab news station, came and was taking pictures, and it's just one of those surprises you'd rather not. Go. <laughs> that was an emergency landing, let alone then you know ending up in Iran. But the people that we dealt with directly were very nice and accommodating, and you know, like I said, things turned out all right. But it's definitely a story to tell. <laughs> we also heard about a story about a terrorist bomb detonating in a hotel. Yeah. Do you want to tell us that one too? Yeah, sure. I was in a I was in a JW Marriott in Jakarta in Indonesia and I was leaving from there to go to Brisbane. So I remember kind of the usual morning routine, you go downstairs, get some breakfast, catch up real quick before getting in the car to to go to the airport. When the plane landed in Brisbane, this will kind of give you a sense of how long that flight is. The flight from Indonesia to uh, Brisbane, even though it's somewhat close, was, what was it, eight hours? But in the, in the interim, the newspapers in Australia had printed for the day, and I got off the plane, and the newspaper, the front page, full page picture was bombing in Jakarta at the JW Marriott Hotel. And literally within hours of when I had left, the car 
with the bomb parked not even 10 yards from where I was sitting, detonated and took about three or four stories of that structure with it. But it kind of, I had a really sick feeling in my stomach. It was like one day, you know, before or after, and that, that could have been you. That was another experience that, yeah, it's kind of fun to tell the kids about. But at the same time, you know, it was uh, sobering. I can imagine for sure all these experiences. After working with IBM or managing a team in India, you moved your family to Holland. You want to, what was that like? And how was the, the culture difference? Yeah. So after Owens Corning, we actually had it in our minds to move back to Utah. We'd been away for quite a while, we moving for all these different jobs and being away from family. So we came back and then we'd only been here for about three years when I was heavily recruited by a, a petrochemical company actually based in Houston called Lionel Bazell. And they wanted me to come and run their shared services, their finance operations. And also at the same time, they wanted me to continue building on this, you know, this vision or this notion of standardization and process-led business. So they actually recruited me from, away from IBM and put me over their shared services. And I was there about a year and a half. And the CFO that I reported to there at the time came to me and said, we have a project for you, but we want you to live, move to Holland and run it from there as opposed to be in the U.S. And the project was really going through and seeing if there was a way to consolidate all of the legal entities that they use to operate in Europe down to one, maybe two. And by simplifying the legal entity structure, the accountant would hear that and immediately know that makes things much simpler because then you don't have several sets of books you don't have several legal entities, you've standardized that or consolidated it. So that was what took us then quickly from Houston after only we moved to Houston, we'd only been there for about a year and a half, to then moving from Houston to Holland. I was really excited. At this point, now my kids were old enough. I was like, wow, they're really, you know, how lucky are they going to be to have this experience was what I was thinking because I hadn't been exposed to international travel or anything like that until I got older. It was in college. And I thought this was going to be really neat. Again, if you're, if you're being sponsored by a big business, then you're going to be an expat. And that means that you're going to get all those expat benefits. The kids are able to go to American school. We were provided for, you know, as far as getting our visas, finding a place to live. In Holland, everyone rides their bike. Bikes have the right-of-way. Before King Wilhelm, who's the current king of Belgium, or sorry, of uh, Holland, his mother, was, who was the queen, her name was Queen Beatrice. And we had been out to the beach, you know, you get on your bike and ride to the beach. How great does that sound, right? And coming back, there were these riders on horses and they were, they were coming to where the bike path met. I just put on my Netherlands hat and said, bikes have the right of way. So I just kept going and I forced all these horse riders to stop. I remember thinking, why are they all wearing the same? And then I said, is that a uniform? And as I'm driving by and then I was like, why does that lady have such funny hair? And it clicked with me, it was the queen. <laughs> Yeah, I totally cut her off. <laughs> it was Queen Beatrice. She was out for a, a horse ride, which she was known to do. And I, I just totally cut her off and uh, made eye contact over my shoulder as I was coming to some realization that um, something was going on. 
you know, one thing people don't know about Holland, for example, is that, and it surprised me that it's true, but almost everyone there is very fluent in English. And they're taught from a very young age that they're a small country. And the only way that they're going to be able to deal in the world is to learn English. They would always start by saying, oh, my English is so poor. But then they would begin to speak just like you or I. And I would always say, your English is perfect. What do you mean? It's fine. I understand. So that part was even, that was win-win because my kids all took Dutch, you know, as part of their schooling. And so they were able to learn a little bit of Dutch, but they were able to kind of go off on their own and explore. And the reason they were able to do that is because most people speak, spoke English. And I really found that to be that English is the language of the business world. And again, that's just based on my own experience, not knowing, I mean, I'm sure there are experts that can speak to that knowing that English was a language of business, you know, I was able to work much more effectively if I had to go to Germany for meetings, if I had to go to Belgium. One of the other projects that I I undertook while I was in Holland was we had a shared services center in Brussels, Belgium. And so if you know anything about Brussels, Belgium, one thing you should know is that it's a very expensive place to live and to pay people. You don't want to, as a company, you want, you need to utilize your resources in a way that will benefit the shareholders or benefit whoever the stakeholders are in the company. So I embarked upon this journey to close this office. <laughs> I was successful eventually, but you know, they had the TV news station show up and they like picketed for an hour and they, you know, resisted, which was their right. But it just taught me that, okay, there's going to be another way of doing business here. So I better learn how things are done in Brussels. I better understand these things called work councils, start leveraging their process for their benefit. I didn't try and do it my way or put my way over over on them. I had to learn if I was a Belgian employer, how would I go about doing this? There's There's a way. And we were eventually successful. And, you know, it wasn't easy, but at the same time, it was to the benefit of the company. So. Did you experience like a reverse culture shock by coming back to the States? You had to adjust. Yeah. So one thing that really stood out to me that we learned quickly is they're much less material focused in the Netherlands. And I would say in surrounding countries, most of the businesses close around four in the afternoon. They have a late shopping day of the week. And in the Netherlands, that was usually Thursday. And then stores would stay open until maybe seven, maybe eight if you were lucky. So all of a sudden, us as Americans, we're used to being able to get in the car and drive to the store. And that doesn't matter what day or depending on the store, what hour it is. We're just used to being able to go and get what we need and come home, never even giving it a forethought of, well, what time is it? You know, and will they be open? It just doesn't cross our minds. Just as a rule, you put off your shopping till the weekend to Saturday. You buy your groceries down at the corner market more often, say a day or two's worth. You didn't, you know, this notion of loading up the cart and buying a week's worth or whatever, that didn't exist. And we tried to do that at first, but it was very expensive. And wow, the looks we got in the grocery store, you know, it's like, look at that American with that cart. <laughs> Full to the top, you know, of food. And it felt like putting on a sign that says, you know, I have four kids. Because uh, <laughs> that is something that was, that was not normal for them either. I mean, two kids was a big family there. I remember the person when we first went over there, she said, wait a minute, you have four kids plus a dog? She goes, we don't even have cars big enough for your family. <laughs> Yeah. So to answer your question, it was when we came back, we, it was surprising to see 
the focus on uh, materialism and things and shopping and all of that, we kind of had to readjust to. And, and like, for example, you go down the cereal aisle and there's probably at least 30 choices. But the Dutch, they just think, well, you know, really you only need three or four. You go down the cereal aisle and there would be three or four choices. <laughs> you know, for someone there, when they come on holiday to the U.S., they're just overwhelmed. They walk through the doors of a Walmart and just see this expanse of everything everywhere, anything you can think of, you know, type of thing. But they also say that the ones that are very Dutch say, well, that's not for me. I don't need 30 choices. I just need one. Thank you very much. Cereal is cereal and I'll be on my way. <laughs> yeah, like most people over here have three or four different types of boxes of cereal just in their cupboard. Not just <laughs> along in the store. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah, well, hey, Dan, thank you so much for meeting with us today. It's been a, been a pleasure to talk and to learn more about your experiences including this interview. What general advice do you have for individuals or young professionals or students that are wanting to go work internationally? Yeah, I think a couple of things just to summarize. If you're going to do it as an entrepreneur, then it's going to be a much different experience for you than it would be for someone that's, quote, part of big business. So keep that in mind. You know, if you're really truly planning a career in big business, then I would start now to say, who are my friends? Who are my contacts in companies that have global operations, if that's what you want to do. Or if you want to do it from an entrepreneurial route, you'll need to start commit reconnecting with other entrepreneurs who've been successful you know, in dealing with a, a global economy or a global organization, plug into them and, and use them as, as a reference point. So I think the entrepreneur versus big business is important. I think as was mentioned before, having a global mindset Knowing that you're going to have to step out of yourself, see things from their point of view and meet them halfway usually is good enough. If they're not willing to meet you halfway, that's a different story. They might just be a difficult person and surprise, surprise, they exist and everywhere, everywhere you go, you know, be prepared to see and understand things from their point of view, their perspective and then meet them halfway. And in doing that, you have the opportunity to really gain so much more than just a business relationship. You might be making friends that you'll stay in touch with over the years. So those would be the, the real high-level things that I would touch on real quickly that might be of help to someone who's considering international business. Hopefully you guys enjoyed listening to Dan as much as we did. And I love that piece of advice, like meeting them halfway. I think that's a good general rule we could live by when interacting with other cultures. Not try and dominate, but I think you bring part of yourself to the table, but also learn from them. Yeah, I think that was throughout his whole thing kind of his main idea, just being open to new experiences, new cultures, and showing them that you're willing to work with them. So, yeah. So we're actually doing something a little bit different this season. We'll have our big main podcast out and then kind of one of our mini series podcasts, how to get the international internship. So we're excited that we have one coming out where we interviewed a BYU student. Cragen Liston. He was awesome. He did an internship in China at a shrimp factory, I believe. Mm -hmm. He was super interesting. He had awesome stories, experiences. If you are interested or you know other people who are looking for those opportunities, Cragen offers some great advice on how to get there and how to make the most of it while you're there. It's a good one. Definitely give it a listen. Thanks, everyone. Check out our content at internationalhub.org.